Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins with the message, A Debt of Love. All right, well, the last time we were together, we read about Paul's great desire to reach the unreached. And so Paul was an amazing guy. He saw all of humanity divided into two groups. He saw the fact that some are saved and some are lost. And Paul went to great lengths in order to reach the lost with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. These great lengths that Paul went to uh, were manifested in three missionary journeys that are recorded for us in the book of Acts. And not only three missionary journeys, but also, as we learned last week, a missions trip from Jerusalem all the way up to Illyricum, the region of Illyricum, modern day uh, the, the, the Balkan um, uh, peninsula there, uh, a distance of 1,400 miles not recorded in Acts. And so from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, some 1,400 miles, right, the distance from Port St. Lucie to Manchester, New Hampshire, what we learned last week, what did Paul do? He went, he shared Christ, he planted churches, he uh, raised up and equipped elders and pastors to oversee those churches, 1,400 miles, and he did, he did all of that without a plane, without a train, without an automobile, he didn't even have a bike. <clears throat> now that's what you call passion, and that's why Paul is regarded by almost everybody within the Christian world as the greatest missionary who ever lived. Now, for sake of our study today, you need to know that one of Paul's dreams was to one day visit Rome, to one day sit down with the recipients of this letter that we've been studying uh, since January. And so um, Paul wanted to go to Rome, but he was so busy reaching the unreached that up to this point in his, in his life, he hadn't had the opportunity to go and visit Rome. Paul's schedule was so hectic, he was hindered from visiting Rome. And that's, that, that, that's what he, um, he's getting to now in verse 22. So check it out, Romans 15, 22. He says, for this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you. What reason? Well, the context from verses 19 through verses 21 is all about his missionary endeavors from Jerusalem to Illyricum and his work in Corinth from where he's writing this letter to the Romans. So for this reason, my hectic, busy schedule, I also have been much hindered from coming to you. But now no longer having a place in these parts, right? Now that my ministry from Jerusalem to Illyricum is done, now that my ministry in Corinth is done, and having a great desire these many years to come to you, verse 24, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you. In other words, Paul is saying, I hope when I go to Spain on that missionary journey in the future that you're going to help me get there, right? Financially support me so I can make it to Spain. That's what he's saying there. If first I may enjoy your company for a while. 
Okay, and so once again, because of his missionary endeavors, Paul, up to this point in his life, has been hindered from going to Rome. But now that his trip from Jerusalem all the way 1,400 miles to Illyricum is done, now that his ministry in Corinth is finished, in Paul's mind, it was time to go to Rome. It was Paul's plan to visit Rome as he's going to Spain. Now, I want you to check out this map. Uh, We're going to put it up on the screen so you kind of get an idea of Paul's travels. And so there he is writing Romans from Corinth, which is in Greece. So does everybody see right top middle of the Mediterranean Sea, Greece? Do you see that? If you see it, say amen. Okay, so that's where he's writing Romans. And so it's his desire to take the gospel westward all the way to the as far as you can go within the Roman Empire of that day, and that's all the way to Spain there on the left side of your screen. It was Paul's plan while traveling to Spain to stop off in Rome. Okay, you guys see Italy? You see the boot? You see Rome there? So it's his plan on his way to Spain to stop in Rome to visit the recipients of this letter. That was his plan. But how many of you know that our plans are not always God's plans, right? And so we're not sure when you read the Bible and you read history, we're not sure if he ever made it to Spain. It was his plan to go to Spain, but from as far as we can tell, he never made it to Spain. He did eventually make it to Rome, but not in the way in which he had planned. You see, instead of going to Rome as a missionary, Paul went to Rome as a prisoner. And so once again, he's writing this letter to the Romans from Corinth. He's getting ready to finish the letter and go down to Jerusalem, and then he thinks he's going to be a missionary to Spain. But instead of that, you guys remember what happens to Paul in Jerusalem? He's arrested. He's arrested by the Roman government, and he goes to Rome, he's transported to Rome. By the way, on the government's, um, the government, the Roman government had to pay for it. And so he's transported to Rome as a prisoner. He's transported in chains. You can read all about Paul's arrest, his appeal to Caesar. You can read all about his voyage to Rome in the closing chapters of the book of Acts. But when we think about Paul's plans and how they relate to God's plans, here's your first point if you're taking notes today. We should write our plans in what? And let God write his plans in what? That's exactly what we see in the life of Paul. It was Paul's plan to go to Rome. Again, let's read about it in verse 24. Check out verse 24 again, just so you can see Paul's plan. Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you, inference there, in Rome. So Paul's pencil said, I'm going to Rome as a missionary on my way to Spain. But then God's pen wrote something different. God's pen said, no, Paul, you're going to Rome as a prisoner in chains. Now, here's what amazes me about Paul. I've been studying Paul now, you know, since I was 17 years old. It's a long time. 
And what I noticed is his amazing attitude. Because even though God's plan was not Paul's plan, Paul was totally okay with it. As you read throughout the book of Acts, especially the last few chapters of Acts that chronicles everything that we're talking about here, you see that Paul's attitude is, hey, it's fine. When God overruled Paul's plan, Paul was totally okay with it. His attitude was, praise the Lord. When you read the final chapters of the book of Acts, you see, in fact, when you read the entire New Testament, you see that Paul never complained one time. His attitude was not, after he got arrested in Jerusalem, his attitude was not, man, I cannot believe this. Why me, God? Why is this happening? This is not happening the way I expected it to happen. Why am I in chains? Why have I been arrested? Why am I, why am I chained to this Roman centurion? Everywhere this guy goes, I gotta go. And the guy stinks. I can't believe this. Wah, 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 right? That wasn't Paul's attitude at all. No, Paul was the eternal optimist. He was the half-glass-full guy. And so his attitude, as you read through Acts and the epistles, his attitude is, man, man I'm chained to a Roman soldier. This is awesome. I have a captive audience to share Christ with. Do you see that? But see, some of you, when you're when your plan is overruled by God's plan and things don't work out the way you expect them to work out, your attitude is you're upset with God. You're mad at God because everything is not happening the way you thought it would happen. Let me give you some good advice this morning. Don't fight God. Here's why. Because God is sovereign, we are not. God sees the whole picture, we do not. And God's ways are perfect, our ways are not. How many of you guys really believe that God's a good, good father? Yeah. Right? And so he answers our prayers, but not always in the way that we think he's gonna answer our prayers. I remember when I was 18 years old, I got saved when I was 17. When I was 18, I was called to be a pastor, 18 years old. And so I thought, Many of you who've been through our, our next class, now it's called Discover Calvary, you've heard this, but I thought when I was 18, I'm gonna go to Bible college, I'm gonna meet a beautiful girl in Bible college, and then I'm gonna get my Bible degree, and my wife, whoever that is, and I are gonna take over you know, this little Baptist church somewhere, and we're gonna live happily ever after. That was my pencil. Thank God God writes in pen, right? Thank God, because here's what happened. I did go to Bible college, and praise God, he did give me a beautiful wife. But I thought I was gonna, my, my wife and I were gonna you know, get this little church somewhere and live happily ever after, and I eventually finished my Bible degree, and then I got a master's degree in counseling, and I'm sending resumes out to be a pastor, and turns out nobody wants me. And so my dad got me a job through his friend at Costco Wholesale. And so from 22 years old, listen to this, all the way till I was 33, I worked at Costco Wholesale, waking up at God-awful time of the day, like 4 a.m., like many of you guys do, by the way, and, and going to work, right, and, and working with, at the depot with these truck drivers who, who, who drive, you know, 
uh, over the road, and, and some of them were godly, but most of them were not. And, and I remember one, one truck driver literally wanted to take me outside and kill me, right? And so I'm going through all my 20s, and I know I'm called to be a pastor, and yet year after year after year after year after year, nobody wants me to be their pastor. And then finally, when I was 33 years old, we walked into a Calvary Chapel, and nine months later, uh, Pastor Dan at Calvary Chapel Jupiter, listen to this, this is a true story, God, he says this, God woke him up and said to him, hire Mike Wiggins. That's after, by the way, and I, I, I don't see a, that big of a deal about that. That was just God answering my 12 years of begging him to put me into ministry. And finally, he's like, fine, right? And he wakes up Dan to do that. But here's the thing. I was 33 years old. Now, looking back on it, I'm so blessed that God didn't give me a little church after I graduated from Bible college because when I was 20, I was green. When I was 20, I didn't have any experience. If I would have taken one of those little churches, the reputation of some of those little churches, they would have chewed me up and spit me out, right? But, but I waited, and I tried to have the best attitude I could have, and I let God overwrite my pencil with his pen, and the result is, look at this beautiful congregation that the Lord has given to me. What, what an awesome thing God's pen is, right? And so he'll do the same thing in your life. What do we have to do? We got to write our plans in pencil. We got to be, stay prayerful and submitted to the Holy Spirit. And then we got to let God write his plan in pen. And then when things don't turn out the way we think they should turn out, we can never forget that all things, everybody say all things, work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Please look at verse 25 now. He says, but now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. Okay, so he's gonna finish his letter to the Romans in Corinth. He's gonna jump on his camel or donkey, whatever. He's gonna head south to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. Verse 26, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain, and I want you to circle the word contribution here. Make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. And so Paul was about to go to Jerusalem, and the reason for his trip was he was going to deliver a contribution to the hurting people there. And so once again, we look at the map. There he is in Greece. He's finishing this letter to the Romans. He's getting ready to head south east to Jerusalem, down the right-hand side of your screen. And then, what does he do? What has he been doing for years? And you read 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, you, re you read about this contribution to the poor, right? So what he, what he did is he asked the churches in Macedonia, you guys see Macedonia there in the top, um, just above Greece? Macedonia, a uh, Achaia, which is Greece. Achaia is the, the lower part just under Greece there. He's asking all those churches, Gentile churches in that region. We know from 1 Corinthians 16.1, he's asking the churches of Galatia. You guys, does everybody see Asia Minor there, modern-day Turkey? Okay, if you see Asia Minor, just say amen so I know you're checking this out. Okay, Galatia, all the churches in that area. He asked all of them, 
I want you to receive a contribution week after week after week for the poor, hurting saints down in Jerusalem. That's what's going on right here in the letter. And so why Jerusalem? What's going on? Well, we know from the Bible that a famine had previously hit that area of Jerusalem and Judea. And so when there's a famine, there's a shortage of crops, shortage of food that leads to poverty. We also know that um, the Jewish believers in Jesus were being persecuted by the Jews that rejected Jesus. We know from Acts that thousands of Jews received Yeshua as their Messiah, but tens of thousands of Jews rejected Yeshua as their Messiah. And so those um, Jews that rejected Jesus were persecuting the Jews that received Jesus. And when you're persecuted by your fellow Jews, you're cut off from the synagogue, you get fired from your job, and you, the family members don't want you anymore, you lose your inheritance, so a famine is leading to poverty, and persecution is leading to poverty. So Paul tells all the Gentile churches in Macedonia, Achaia, Galatia, hey, week after week after week, I want you to receive a contribution so that I, and a delegation, can deliver that contribution down to the poor saints in Jerusalem. Is all this making sense? Look at verse 27. It says, it pleased them, all these Gentile churches, indeed, for they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. I'm going to come back to that. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, okay, after I deliver this special offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem, I shall... Go by way of you to Spain. That's his plan. God had other plans. Verse 29. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Let's just finish out the chapter here. Verse 30. Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in what? Prayers, Prayers to God for me. By the way, that's the most important thing you could ever do for me and my family. Pray for us. Paul knew that. He's always asking people, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me. Verse 31, what was his three specific prayer requests? Verse 31, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, the Jews that rejected Jesus, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. You know, when I, when I deliver this offering, that they'll be happy. James and the church of Jerusalem will be happy for this gift. Verse 32, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you that I eventually make it to Rome and get to see all you beautiful people that I've written this letter to. And then he says in verse 33, now the God of peace be with you all. And all God's people said, amen. but guess what? In classic Pauline fashion, he says amen, but he's got a whole chapter left uh, to finish to them. He's a long-winded preacher. And so let's go back now, and we're going to spend the rest of our time this afternoon focusing on verses 26, 27, and 1 Corinthians 9. Okay, so please look at verse 26. He says, for it, and I want you to underline the word pleased. 
For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. Verse 27. It, and I want you to underline again, the word pleased. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. And so again, when the Gentile believers up in Macedonia, Achaia, and Galatia, when they heard about the troubled times that the saints in Jerusalem were having, it pleased them. Everybody say pleased. It pleased them to receive all these offerings, financial offerings, to give to the poor brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. What does that mean to us today, right? We gotta apply the Bible to our lives. And so what does that mean? It means that we should be pleased to give. Right? This is not just a heady study of the Bible to make our heads real big with Bible knowledge. Right? We believe in the life application, verse-by-verse verse, teaching of God's Word. And so we're constantly looking for what can we apply to our lives as we're going through the Scriptures. It pleased the Gentile churches to receive an offering of 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, multiple offerings. And so it should please us when we're called upon to give. The Bible is clear, ladies and gentlemen, when it comes to our attitude toward giving, we should be cheerful givers, right? Check out 2 Corinthians 9, 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, <clears throat> not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves what kind of a giver? And so when we give, we're not to do it grudgingly, or of necessity. In other words, when we give, God's saying, make sure your attitude is not, you know, oh man, I gotta give again. Oh, this hurts so much. No. God would say, keep your money. If that's your attitude. By the way, did everybody hear that? Seriously, if that's your attitude, just keep your money. The last thing I ever want to be known as is like one of those guys on TV that's every time you turn the TV on, it's about giving, 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 giving. Why they live in a mansion and drive their BMWs and fly around in their own jets. You know, all that's excess stupidity in my, in my opinion. Let's just put that all over here. But hey, if, if your attitude toward giving is grudgingly and of necessity, you know, some pastors would say, give anyway. I'm saying just keep your money. Hey, my father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can, he can provide whatever he wants to provide. This is for your benefit. Not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, our attitude should be like the attitude of those in Macedonia and Achaia. Hey, we get to give to our poor brothers and sisters in Jerusalem? Yeah. Cheerful. The, the Greek word is where we get our English word hilarious. That's why I love it sometimes when, when it's time to receive the offering that some of you guys get excited and you clap your hands. There's a biblical warrant to that. The Gentiles were cheerful givers, not tearful givers. Look at verse 27. There's a fascinating principle here. It says, it pleased them indeed for they are their 
debtors. In other words, the Gentiles owe the Jews, the Jewish believers, a debt. We're still reading in verse 27. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty, that's interesting, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Paul says, you Gentiles up in Macedonia and Achaia and Galatia, you're in debt to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. You owe them, listen to this, you owe them a debt of love. Now, the New King James is a little hard to understand. King James is a little, even, a little harder to understand. And I love the New Living Translation, trans, um, the way they interpret or translate verse 27. So check it out on your screen. Romans 15, 27. They were glad, that's the churches in Macedonia and Achaia. They were glad to do this, receive the contribution, because they feel they owe a real debt to them. Who? The church of Jerusalem. Since the Gentiles received the, what's underlined there? Of the good news from the believers in Jerusalem, they feel the least they can do in return is to help them what? And that's exactly what it means in the original language. And so what were the spiritual blessings that the Gentiles received from the Jewish believers? Well, the church in Jerusalem, pastored by James, right? Co-pastored or pastored by Peter, however you look at that. Um, what, what were they doing for years? They were sending Jewish evangelists and Jewish missionaries to <clears throat> share the gospel, to plant churches, to uh, equip pastors and elders to start churches all up in these Gentile areas. What was the result? Listen to this. If you're with me, say amen here. The Gentiles heard the gospel. The Gentiles received Christ. The Gentiles were taught the word of God. And the Gentiles grew in their faith spiritually. Therefore, the Gentiles were in debt to the Jewish believers. They owed them a debt of love. And that leads you to your next point if you're taking notes. We owe a debt of love to those who minister to us Spiritually. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 9. Oh, man. I'm writing this message this week. But honestly, I'm, I'm writing this message this week, and I'm thinking, this sounds so self-serving. But it is black and white in the book. So go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians 9. A very similar passage in 1 Corinthians 9. We're, we're done in Romans 15. So 1 Corinthians 9. And by the way, I love you guys too. So 1 Corinthians 9. Paul, you know, we all esteem Paul as this great apostle. And he was a great apostle. But back in the first century, you know, not everybody looked at Paul the way we look at Paul. There were a lot of skeptics. There was a lot of people who were questioning Paul's authority in the church. They were questioning whether or not he was really a true apostle. And therefore, they weren't sending financial, some people weren't sending financial support to Paul. And so Paul now writes to the church at Corinth. He goes, am I not an, an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless, doubtless I am to you. 
For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we, speaking about ministers of the gospel like Paul and Barnabas, do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord in Cephas or Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Verse 7, whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat his fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink the milk of the flock. Okay, so again, some in the church of Corinth were questioning Paul's authority as an apostle. And so many of them were not supporting Paul. Paul's defense is everybody else receives a living from their occupation. So why can't ministers of the gospel receive a living from their occupation? He says in verse 7, who goes to war at his own expense? I mean, can you imagine if a nation sends a soldier out to, to fight that nation's battles on a foreign battlefield, and yet the nation says, oh, while you're over there, uh, uh, um, sergeant, you got to find a job in Afghanistan to support yourself because we're not going to take care of you. Has that ever happened? No. Right? The soldier receives his living from his occupation. Paul goes on in verse 7 and says, who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat its fruit? And so every vine dresser receives a living from his occupation. He goes on in verse seven, he says, what, uh, who tends a flock and does not drink the milk of the flock? And so the shepherd receives a living from his occupation. The milk, the, the, the wool, the, vine, the, the, the vine dresser gets the grapes, right? Doesn't have to pay for that stuff. They receive their living. So Paul's point is, again, everybody else receives a living from their occupation, so why shouldn't we as ministers receive a living from our occupation. Look at verse eight. Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not, what's the next two words? The law. The law. You see, I understand we're in a dispensation of grace. I, I get that. I am a dispensationalist. I'm not an uh, um, uh, excessive or hyper in any way, shape, or form dispensationalist. Uh, but I am a dispensationalist. I understand there's a dispensation of law and there's a dispensation of grace and we're in the dispensation of grace. I get all that. But Paul goes back to the law to draw out principles. How many of you guys believe that all 66 books are inspired by God? Amen. Right? And we can learn from the Old Testament principles that we can apply in the New Testament age. And so do I say these things as a mere man or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen that God's concerned about when he wrote that verse in Deuteronomy? Or does not he say it all together for our sakes, the sakes of the ministers of the gospel? He says, for our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be a partaker of this hope. And then here's the very similar verse to what we just read in Romans 15, 27. Right here in 1 Corinthians 9, 11. He says, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we re reap your what? 
Paul's point is that if ministers are providing a spiritual service for the church, if they're winning people to Christ, if they're baptizing people, if they're teaching people, if they're counseling people, if they're praying for people, if they're caring for people, if they're marrying people, if they're burying people, if they're administrating all the work of the ministry, then God's people in turn should provide material support for them. Right there. And yet, people come to church twice a month, they sit in the pew, they sit, soak, sour, they never serve, they never give a dime, all they're doing is receiving, 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 and they never give back. And it's no wonder their spiritual life is dead. Because God says, I want something more from you. It's more blessed to give than to receive. See, that's what it means to walk the victorious Christian walk. And so, what does this look like? Jump down to verse 13. He says, do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? He's talking about the Old Testament ministers called the Levites. So he's going back to the law to pull out a principle living in the New Testament. Verse 14, even so, if you have the ESV or the NLT or the NIV, it's in the same way. The Lord has, what's the word? That those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. And so in Old Testament times, you had the Levites. And what did they do? They provided a spiritual service for God's people. And they were therefore supported by God's people. How? Two ways. Sometimes they would bring an animal sacrifice. You guys remember this in the law? It's chopped up, it's divided, part of it's burned up to God, part of it's uh, taken home by the family, they eat it, and part of it goes to the Levite. So there's a little bit of provision, he's eating, right? Um, Leg of lamb or whatever. But the primary way that that Levite is supported is by the tithes that were brought to the temple storehouse. So if you're new to the Bible, I want you to really understand this, okay? In that agrarian society, people tithe. The word tithe means 10%. They tithe of their grain, their fruit, their wine, their oil, and the firstborn of their herds and flocks. They brought their tithes to the temple storehouse and the Levites and their families were supported by those tithes. Look at what God said about the, the Levites right here in Numbers 18, 21. Behold, I have given the children of Levi all the what? In Israel as an inheritance in return for the work. And by the way, if an Old Testament or New Testament minister is lazy and doesn't work, then they shouldn't get anything. That wasn't in the notes, but anyway. You get the tithes as an inheritance in return for the work which they perform, the work of the tabernacle of meeting. First it was the tabernacle, later on it was the temple. And so what is Paul's point? I want you to look at verse 13 and 14 again so you really get the flow here. He says in verse 13, Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Okay, even so... The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. What is he saying? 
He's saying that Old Testament ministers were supported by God's people, even so, or in the same way, New Testament ministers should be supported by God's people. Is that clear for you guys? So we do have a duty. We do have a responsibility. Now, um, John Piper, I, I've shared this with you like a year and a half ago when I was teaching through 1 Corinthians 9, has a great article, if you want to learn more about tithing, called Toward the Tithe and Beyond. And I, I, this guy's a Bible scholar. Okay, this is what he says about this whole thing about tithing. The verses that we just read. He says, the least Paul is saying is that those who spend their lives in the service of the word of God should be supported by the rest of the Christians. But since he draws attention to the way it was done in the Old Testament as the model, it seems likely that tithing would have been the early Christian guideline, if not the mandate. Now, Stacy and I, my wife and I, wholeheartedly believe in the principle of the tithe. We, we have for many years. So every time we get paid, we take a minimum of 10% of the gross and we give it to this local church. We believe in tithing and we believe in giving offerings above the tithe um, um, the same way the churches in Macedonia and Achaia gave to the poor people in Jerusalem. And so the, as we've been living our lives and tithing, uh, over, over the tithe, throughout the years, the Holy Spirit will lead us in different ways, and we've given to different organizations above our tithe. Currently, um, and this is just where we're at right now, and we've been doing this for a year or so, we've been giving uh, above our tithe to GBCM, Global Vision Citadel Ministries. Remember Haiti Sunday when Pastor Eve came up? I've been down there uh, a couple times myself. Um, it's, it's an amazing ministry. These people are taking care of, they're building homes for widows. How much more pure can you be than that? They're taking care of orphans, right? What is pure religion and undefiled, according to the word of God in James? Take care of the widows and orphans. And so my wife and I, above our tithe, give a general uh, donation to their general fund, and we also support two orphans um, there in that ministry, that may be something God leads you to do. God may lead you above your tithe to give to um, New Hope, uh, another mission organization in Haiti that we support. Or you can go to our website, click on missions, and you can see all the different missionaries and church plants that we support. And God may encourage you to, to give above your tithe to, to, to one of them. It's how the Holy Spirit leads you. And so once again, just like the Gentiles in Macedonia, Nicaea, and Galatia uh, gave freely to the poor saints in Jerusalem. So my wife and I, the Holy Spirit's led us to give uh, to the poor saints in Haiti. That's what we wanna do. And so when we're raising money for our school, hopefully that'll start in March. By the way, they changed our site plan approval date again. Now it is January the 23rd. Please continue to pray to get that site plan approval across the street so we can clear the land, make that a parking lot and start raising money for our school. But when we start raising money for our school, we're not doing it now, don't give to the school yet till we get the site plan approval. But um, when we start raising money for our school, my wife and I will give above the tithe to that project is something we believe in. Our church tithes, right? Our, our church, uh, we just had a board meeting um, just last week. Jack Worrell sits on our board. 
Um, Marsha gets to sit in and take the minutes, and we have a, a board of, of directors, and they go, th- go through the budget, and I was so happy to report to the board that this church has given above the, we've given 13% of all that's come in this year, we've sent out 13%. That's an awesome thing. Now, I don't say all this about our giving, our personal giving, to blow the trumpet and call attention like the Pharisees did. That's not my heart motive at all. God knows my heart motive. My motive is that I'm the lead pastor of this church, and if I'm not tithing and giving offerings above my tithe, how can we ever expect the members to tithe and give offerings above their tithe? That's the motive there, is to lead by example. Now, in case you're thinking that we should ignore the principle of the tithe because we're no longer under the law, I have to remind you of this, that tithing predates the law by 430 years. This is an important principle. Those of you guys who've been with us for years, you've heard me say this, but so many of you are new, so let me refresh your memory. 430 years before Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive the law of God, 430 years before that, a man named Abraham, who Romans 4 says is the father of the faithful, the father of all who believe, he had an encounter in Genesis 14 that changed his life. In that passage of Genesis 14, Abraham and his men had to go rescue his nephew Lot from the enemy. They won that battle, and they're coming back with the spoils of war. And does anybody remember who comes out to meet Abraham? Melchizedek. Some of you are thinking, what? Melchizedek. You can read it later in Genesis 14. He comes out carrying um, uh, bread and wine, and he meets Abraham. Now, What does Abraham do 430 years before the law? Check it out, Genesis 14, 20. And he, Abraham, gave him, Melchizedek, a what of all? A tithe of all. Well, who in the world was Melchizedek? It says in the New Testament, in Hebrews, that he was the king of Salem, later known as Jerusalem, the priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, then king of Salem, meaning the king of peace. Listen to this. This is Melchizedek. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. And so who was Melchizedek? At the very least, he was a type of Christ. Some scholars believe he was an Old Testament appearance of Christ. And so I want you guys to understand what we're teaching here. 430 years before the law, because you always hear people say, I don't tithe, I'm not under the law. Listen, 430 years before the law, you have Abraham who's tithing to a type of Christ, Somebody who has no beginning, no end, no genealogy, who's made like the Son of God. He could have been Christ himself. Who knows? We'll find out when we get to heaven. But he tithed to this type of Christ. Now, if you're with me, say amen here. This is the primary reason why I tithe. Not because I'm a Jew under under the law who has to, but because I'm a Christian under grace and I get to. That's why I do it. I get to. And tithing must have continued because 30 years later, 
Abraham's grandson, Jacob, made a vow to God, I'm going to tithe to you for the rest of my life. There in Genesis 28. And so what did St. Augustine say? Check it out on your screen. He said, whosoever therefore desires to secure a reward for himself, let him render tithes. And out of the nine parts, let him seek to give alms. Now, what reward is Augustine talking about? I'm going to read it to you from Malachi 3.10. Here's the reward. God says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try or test me now in this. You guys have heard this. The only place in the Bible where God says, test me. Test me. Those of you who have given 4%, test me. Those of you who have given 6%, test me. Those of you like me and Stacy who for years gave 8% because I didn't have enough faith to give 10. Aren't you glad for God's grace? He says, test me. Test me. Says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And so that's God's promise. I believe it's a promise for every age before the law, during the law, after the law. The question is will you trust God in every area of your life, including your finances? One of the greatest gifts God can give His children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com. Click on Home, then Knowing Christ.